Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 18.1 Eden Reborn You're hot, tired, and sweaty. Your back hurts from riding your horse for the last 500 miles or so. The year is 572 BC. You are part of a small delegation from the Medo-Persian king Cyrus to check on the well-being of his daughter, Amethyst. She is the wife of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. The shape of the ancient world had changed rather suddenly in the past few decades. In Mesopotamia, Nebuchadnezzar had resurrected the old Babylonian empire and now controlled almost all of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. To the east, the Medes and the Persians had joined together to form the Medo-Persian Empire. This empire stretched all the way from India to the Tigris River, and all the way even into Anatolia, and bordered the old Hittite lands. The Assyrian Empire had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar, and the last remnants of the Jewish kingdoms over in Canaan also fell to him. This would be the last time in history that there were multiple empires in Mesopotamia. The desert seemed endless, sand as far as the eye could see in either direction. But you knew you were getting close. The birds were an obvious sign. That and the increased traffic on the desert road. It's not too long before the massive, magnificent city of Babylon appears on the horizon. Even though you're still about a day's ride away, you can definitely make out the massive walls and the apartment buildings which tower over them. You could even see the tops of the palaces from here. It hasn't been that long since you've been in Babylon, about five years or so, since you were there for your last checkup on the Queen. But there is one building that you can see the top of that you don't recognize. From a distance, the building looks like it's moving. But you know that can't be possible. As you get closer to the city, the brilliant blue glaze of the walls of Babylon come to block anything else to be viewed over top of them. That must have been a mirage, that moving building you think to yourself. But you make a mental note to go and check it out as soon as you possibly can. Babylon is even more crowded than it was before, which doesn't seem possible. As soon as you pass through the Ishtar Gate, there are vendors selling anything you can think of, people clamoring and shouting, and animals braying. The noise is deafening. Babylon is much bigger and more populated than any city of the Medo-Persian Empire, and it is always a shock to you that this many people can live in one city. But fairly quickly, a party sent by the queen finds you in the crowd. They tell you that the king and queen are taking their daily walk through the garden, and are expecting you. They said they will meet you at the top. At the top, you think to yourself. Gardens don't have a top. But you follow the queen's handmaids and their guards through the center of the city. You enter the royal district, which you recognize from your previous trips to the city. But as you round a corner, you stop in your tracks. You weren't entirely sure what to expect when they mentioned the tops of the gardens 
but now it makes sense. You weren't sure what to expect, but it wasn't this. There in front of you is an upside-down mountain. An upside-down mountain in the middle of the desert. This mountain is covered in trees, bushes, and all manner of greenery. Now you know why the building you saw in the distance looked like it was moving. The wind blowing through the leaves and the vines made the building come alive. There were elaborate waterfalls, pools, and streams running down the entire structure. But as impressive as these gardens were, you couldn't just keep standing there, staring. The king and queen would be ready for you soon. So you continued to follow the queen's servant into the gardens themselves. As soon as you stepped onto the path, you were transported back home to Persia. The temperature was about 10 degrees cooler than anywhere else in Babylon. You recognized all the plants as being native to Persia. The birds were all Persian as well. There were fruiting trees, ferns, vines, flowers, grasses, and a whole plethora of plants that you hadn't seen before. As you continued to walk up the gardens, you crossed over little bridges which ran over the streams that ran down the gardens. You even walked under a few waterfalls. When you reach the summit, you walk onto a large, open meadow. All around you are trees and grasses, all kinds of plants from Persia. You find a small shack in the middle, where the king and queen are sitting together. They seem almost lost in space, just staring at the grass and the pools which surround them. They seem almost startled when the queen's handmaid clears her throat to announce your arrival. The queen jumps up, looks at you and smiles. The king seems surprised by her smile. Welcome to paradise, she tells you in her native Persian tongue. This truly is paradise, your majesty. This paradise is one of the original seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. One of the most famous structures of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens were a paradise in the harsh sands of Babylon. But as always, before we get too far into this wonder, some context first. We won't go too much into Nebuchadnezzar's life since we talked about it all the way back in episode 2.1. But since it's been about a year since we've talked about it, we'll go over it a little bit. When King Nebuchadnezzar came to power in 605 BC, the Babylonian Empire was a shadow of its former self. During his childhood, his father Nabopolassar, a general in the Babylonian army, led a revolt against Ashurbanipal, the king of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was the dominant power of the day. However, Nabopolassar dreamed of restoring Babylon to her former glory. He refused to see an Assyrian delegation, crowned himself king, and led the revolt. Like most empires, Assyria had grown too big for its own shoes. Rebellions started popping up all over the empire, and the Assyrian army was spread too thin to put them all down. However, the Babylonian uprising, which was close to home, was initially unsuccessful against the Assyrians. That is until the Medo-Persians decided to get involved. 
In 615 BC, Nabopolassar tried to take the Assyrian capital of Asher, but was unsuccessful. However, reinforcements would come to the Babylonians from the east. The Medes were tired of Assyrian dominance and wanted to expand westward, from the mountains of northern Iran, which is where they originated. So they formed an alliance with the Babylonians. To cement this alliance, Nebuchadnezzar, the young prince of Babylon, was given Amethyst, the princess of Persia, in marriage to be his wife. This alliance and reinforcements were exactly what the Babylonians needed. In 612 BC, Asher fell to the Medo-Babylonian Empire, and suddenly Mesopotamia looked very different. In the southern part, all the way over to Canaan, the Babylonians were now in control. In the northern part, all the way into Anatolia, Medo-Persia was now in charge. And it would be only seven years before Nebuchadnezzar came to rule the Babylonian throne. He continued down the path of his father and continued the conquests around him. He conquered the remnants of the Jewish kingdom in Canaan and the rest of southern Mesopotamia. He attempted to conquer Egypt as well, but the Egyptians and Babylonians fought to a stalemate, so both sides decided to call a truce. Despite this setback, Nebuchadnezzar's reign was really a golden age for Babylon. The city itself rose to heights it hadn't even reached under Hammurabi, the great Babylonian king of old, and was the most beautiful city in the world. The bright blue Ishtar Gate dominated the entrance to the city, a symbol of power and prestige. There were three palaces, a number of canals, terraces, and all the kinds of building projects throughout the city. The city became so big that Aristotle commented something fascinating about Babylon when the city was captured. He wrote, It is said that when Babylon was captured, a considerable part of the city was not aware of it until three days later. Now I know the Babylonians didn't have social media or anything like that to help them out, but still, you'd think you'd be aware of the fact that your city had been captured. I mean, there usually was a foreign army outside for a while. Kind of a dead giveaway. But I think that for a size comparison, the city of Babylon back then was like New York City today. Not nearly as many people lived in Babylon as do in New York City today. But Babylon was the heart of the world. Anyone who was anyone came to Babylon for the latest in culture and arts of the day. Fashion, tools, food, etc. All of these originated in Babylon. So it seemed like a win-win for everyone. Everyone, that is, except Amethyst. While it was her marriage to Nebuchadnezzar which solidified the alliance and launched the Babylonian Golden Age, she wasn't exactly overjoyed at leaving her home in mountainous Persia to the hot, flat sands of Babylon. And I don't blame her. It wasn't her choice to go to Babylon. She had to do what she was told. But Nebuchadnezzar, to his credit, is described as being a very loving husband to Amethyst, and hated to see her suffering in Babylon. So when she asked him to build her something that reminded her of the mountains of Media, he did just that. I mean, he had the tools, technology, money, and manpower to do it. So he did it. And I don't even think Amethyst 
could have anticipated what her little request would have turned into. Now this brings us to something totally unique about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Normally, by this point in the episode, we'll have already dived into how big the wonder was, how it was built, what materials were used to build it, etc. But that's not possible for the Hanging Gardens. They are the only wonder on this list, which we have virtually no record of the size of the wonder. There is such little evidence for the Hanging Gardens that, in fact, some historians dispute if they ever existed at all. I don't agree with this assessment. I do believe they existed. There are enough mentions throughout ancient historical texts which describe them that I believe the Hanging Gardens did exist. Pretty much every ancient historian who comments on the city mentions them. But none of them record the size of the gardens. The first record that we know of that mentions the Hanging Gardens was from a Greek historian named Barossus of Kos. While we do not have Barossus's initial work, his work was quoted by other historians, and we do have those. Most notably, the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote two extensive histories on the Jewish people, quoted Barossus multiple times. One quote says this, When he, Nebuchadnezzar, had thus admirably fortified the city, and had magnificently adorned its gates, he added also a new palace to those which his forefathers had dwelt, adjoining them, but exceeding them in height and splendor. Any attempt to describe it would be tedious, yet notwithstanding its prodigious size and magnificence, it was finished within fifteen days. In this palace he erected very high walls, supported by stone pillars, and by planting what was called a pensile paradise. And replenishing it with all sort of trees, he rendered the project an exact resemblance of a mountainous country. This he did to gratify his queen, because she had been brought up in media and was fond of a mountainous situation. Josephus quotes Barossus again later in another of his writings. He, Nebuchadnezzar, also erected elevated places for walking, of stone, and made it resemble mountains, and built it so it might be planted with all sorts of trees. He also erected what was called a pensile paradise, because his wife was desirous to have things like her own country, she having been bred up in the palaces of Media. These are pretty much saying the same thing, but only adds to the credibility of Barossus' own account. But while these descriptions of the Hanging Gardens are the oldest, they don't tell us anything about the size of them. The closest we get to that comes from a man named Diodorus of Siculus. He was a first century Greek historian, so even his description of the Hanging Gardens comes almost 600 years later but he describes them as follows. There was of old time a king who, for his lady's sake, prepared this garden as you shall hear. This mistress, whom he so tenderly loved, was Persian-born, and as the nature of that country is, she had a great desire to stand upon high hills and see the country around her. So she entreated her sovereign lord to make her a ground, or an arbor of pleasure, artificially devised by curious craftsmanship. 
The entrance into it was in a hill, with building upon building made to a wondrous height, so that a man could see out of it far and wide. There were vaults made underground that bore up all the weight of this garden. One vault was sent upon another, and the higher that the building proceeded, the bigger was the vault. On the uppermost vaults, the walls of this garden were founded and set twenty-two feet thick. There were cisterns of water in the pavement, and in this garden were all manner of trees, delectable to see, and fresh green meadows. Moreover, there was a conduit that by craft conveyed water for the irrigation of the soil. This description of the hanging gardens is fascinating because it tells us something that contrasts how the hanging gardens are typically portrayed. If you've seen any artist's rendition of what they think the hanging gardens looked like, you've probably seen something that looks like the Great Ziggurat of Ur, but with trees. I have some pictures up on the website for reference, but what you see is a multi-level building with each level smaller than the one below it. But that is not how Diodorus describes the hanging gardens. In fact, he says they were the exact opposite. According to Diodorus, the hanging gardens were built in an inverted ziggurat form, with the smallest level at the bottom and each level above it bigger than the one before. If this is true, this is truly a masterful feat of engineering. Such buildings are difficult to build even today with all of our technology, and Nebuchadnezzar did it more than 2,500 years ago. Such a building is perfectly possible for the ancient peoples, though. This show has shown us that. But the only description of how the Hanging Gardens were actually built was written by the Greek historian Strabo, also writing in the 1st century BC. He writes this, Babylon, too, lies in a plain, and the circuit of its walls is 385 stadia, or about 60.71 kilometers, or about 38 miles. The thickness of its wall is 32 feet. The height thereof between the towers is 50 cubits, 22.5 meters, or about 74 feet. That of the towers is 60 cubits, 27 meters, or about 89 feet. And the passage on top of the wall is such that four horse chariots can easily pass one another. And it's on this account that this and the hanging garden are called one of the seven wonders of the world. The garden is quadrangular in shape. Each side is four plethora, about 123.2 meters or about 405 feet in length. It consists of arched vaults, which are situated one after another on checkered cube-like foundations. The checkered foundations, which are hollowed out, are covered so deep with the earth that they admit the largest of trees having been constructed of baked brick and asphalt, the foundation themselves and the vaults and the arches. The ascent to the uppermost terrace roofs is made by a stairway, and alongside these stairs were screws, through which water was continuously conducted up into the garden from the Euphrates River, by those appointed for this purpose. For the river, a stadium in width, about 600 feet, flows through the middle of the city, and the garden is on the bank of the river. This description by Strabo 
despite being written almost 600 years after the construction of the Hanging Garden, is so precise in some details that it adds to the credibility of the existence of the Hanging Gardens. A detail which I think is fascinating that Strabo mentions here is how there were screws through which water was continually conducted up to the garden from the Euphrates. This means that there was an intricate waterwork system developed to bring water up from the river to the top of the gardens, where it would then flow back down before ending up in the river once again. While this description tells us nothing about the height of the gardens, it does give us a width. Each side being about 400 feet long is quite impressive. For a size comparison, 400 feet is a little longer than the average soccer field or football field. So pretty much imagine four soccer fields or four football fields put together. That is the size of the uppermost garden. This is quite possibly the closest thing we have to a detailed picture as to what the hanging gardens actually looked like. Another problem with the hanging gardens is that if they existed, when did they fall? Did they fall fairly quickly like the Colossus of Rhodes? Or did they stand for centuries before falling to a natural disaster or an army? Were they possibly destroyed when the Persian army came and conquered Babylon? Or maybe even Alexander's army? I'll get to that in just a second, but I want to comment on something strange. As far as we know, Arguably one of the greatest ancient historians, Herodotus, never went to visit Babylon to see the gardens for himself, or sent someone to see them and write down what he saw. Such a glaring omission from Herodotus's work about the ancient world really can make us question the hanging gardens. Perhaps they fell before Herodotus was born, which is about 475 BC. If this is the case, then the Hanging Gardens would have only stood for maybe about a hundred years or so before collapsing. Which is entirely possible. But I find it hard to believe that the Persian army would have destroyed it when Babylon fell. I mean, after all, it was built for one of their queens less than 50 years prior. So what would have caused its destruction? A flood, perhaps? Or an earthquake, even? Whatever caused the destruction of the Hanging Gardens... The Hanging Gardens were an engineering feat, like the Colossus, too far ahead of its time. While they were both remarkable, beautiful, stunning wonders of the world, perhaps the technology didn't quite exist to support them well enough, and a flood or an earthquake or some other natural disaster came and knocked them over. There are some accounts written several hundred years later stating that the Hanging Gardens were still standing in the 4th century BC. But again, if they were, then Herodotus would have most likely gone to see them. But there's no way to know for certain. There is one other hypothesis that I want to throw out there. Perhaps Alexander the Great's army accidentally caused the collapse of the Hanging Gardens when he took the city around 330 BC. And this caused Alexander such distress that he ordered all written records of the gardens be brought to him or destroyed. Perhaps he intended on rebuilding the Hanging Gardens once his conquests were over. After all, Babylon was the capital of his new empire, and Alexander's conquest was just as much about knowledge as it was about the land. 
But when he died and his empire fractured, the grand plans for Babylon went with him. Perhaps some detailed descriptions or maybe even some drawings of the Hanging Gardens are buried with Alexander the Great. It's not likely, but it's an interesting hypothetical. Now it is here that we usually comment about the remarkable feat that it was that this wonder was built. And we set up for our next week's episode to talk about the history of the wonder. But as we've just discussed, there is no history of the Hanging Gardens. So sadly, this will be the only episode on them. And to be frank, the only reason the Hanging Gardens are on this list is because they are on the original list of Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. If they weren't, they wouldn't be here. There's just not enough information about them. But what I keep coming back to is the fact that they are on the original Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. Despite the lack of physical and textual evidence proving the Hanging Gardens even existed, there's at least that. The fact that the Hanging Gardens were put on the original list of Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. We have covered six of the Seven Ancient Wonders so far, including the Hanging Gardens, and all of them were more than deserving of their spot on this list. And the Hanging Gardens are no different. Hopefully someday, as archaeological discoveries continue, we will find some kind of proof of the Hanging Gardens. Sadly, Babylon's location isn't ideal. But who knows? Something may turn up. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that one day we will find some detailed record of how the Hanging Gardens were built, the materials that were used, how long it stood for, and how and when it collapsed. Until then, the Hanging Gardens must remain in the imaginations of historians. Quite possibly the most beautiful gardens ever constructed on Earth, and second only to the Garden of Eden. But next week, we will be moving on to the next wonder on our list. This wonder is one of the most famous buildings of the ancient world, and one of the most famous of the modern as well. It is a popular tourist attraction even to this day. It was the heartbeat of the greatest empire of the Western world. But what often gets lost in its history is the horror that took place within its walls. The cheers from the crowd and the cries of the men and beasts echo throughout its blood-soaked history. Amen.